0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: My main collaborator and I really wanted to know, can you fake it till you make it? In 2012, this TED talk put forward a simple yet powerful idea. Tiny tweaks can lead to big changes. Before you go into the next stressful evaluative situation, for two minutes, try doing this. Here, the speaker, Harvard researcher Amy Cuddy, struck a power pose. Hands on hips, wide stance, chest open. When you pretend to be powerful, you are more likely to actually feel powerful. This idea about the power of, well, power posing, would catch on like wildfire. Amy's talk would rack up millions of views. She'd go on to write a book. And the implications for people who often lack power were vast.
0: She basically came to argue that power posing could help women in particular feel more powerful and that this could close the various gender gaps that plague us in the States and I'd imagine Australia as well. So the idea of just standing in sort of an assertive pose for about a minute before a big meeting, this caught on, like people seriously believe this.
1: But in the years following that TED Talk, the research behind power posing would start to unravel. And what happened with power posing is just one example of a much wider issue with a lot of pop psychology. I think
0: American culture has always had this fascination that we can just sort of manifest good things for ourselves.
1: You're listening to All In The Mind, I'm Sana Adar. Today, one of our summer highlights from the past year, the problem with popular psychology and whether self-help actually helps. The thing with power posing is it wasn't like it was a totally random idea. It built on an existing body of research.
0: Yeah, there's this line of research called basically embodied cognition research, and that has to do with the connection between body and mind.
1: This is science writer Jesse Single. He's the author of a book called The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills.
0: And specifically, like, the key conceit here is we flip the normal idea that you you think something and your body reacts as a result to maybe your body moving in a certain way can cause you to think things. So there was a classical study purporting to show that if you sort of force someone's uh, face into a smile by having them hold a pencil in their teeth – that makes them uh, happier or makes them find certain stimuli funnier. It was sort of a short path from there to like, okay, well, maybe if you stand in a more powerful pose, you'll feel more powerful and this will, will benefit you in various ways.
1: Amy Cuddy's research, conducted alongside Dana Carney and Andy Yap, looked at the effect of high power and low power poses in a group of students.
0: It took a bunch of Columbia kids. They had some of them pose like sort of standing up assertively, hands on their hips like Wonder Woman. They had others sort of cross their arms. Those were contractive poses. And they found that the people in the expansive poses, the Wonder Woman poses, had higher levels of testosterone, lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol, and acted a little bit more aggressively in this betting game where you could do a double or nothing bet to turn
1: $2 into $4. So what was the problem with this research?
0: One of the co-authors on the original study, uh, Dana Carney at UC Berkeley, uh, around 2015-2016, she posted a note to her faculty webpage saying, "I don't believe in this thing we found. I think we unintentionally cut certain statistical corners, and there's no actual result there. We don't. We didn't really find anything. And the the specific uh, corner cutting she." said they did is called p-hacking, which is a bit technical to get into. I do in the book, but it turns out that a lot of social psychologists for a long, uh, a long time were employing these methodological techniques that can very easily create false positives. This wasn't really due to like any malevolent intent; it was just sort of a lack of um, statistical sophistication. But then people also tried to replicate it, meaning they tried to run similar experiments, see if they would get the same results, and they often came up empty, including like bigger, more statistical robust studies. so that is often a good sign that like there isn't much there there if you can't replicate something.
1: This failure to replicate is at the heart of so many dubious studies, Jesse says, and he's had plenty of experience with questionable research claims.
0: So I was at New York Magazine for a few years and I spent most of my time there editing a web page, a, a vertical, as we call it in the biz, called The Science of Us. So it was our job to sort of present interesting behavioral science findings to our audience. and. While I was there, I realized that a lot of what university press offices and and researchers themselves were trying to sell me was pretty shoddy. And in some cases, it was at this dangerous intersection of being shoddy, but also concerned with like very, very serious societal issues where we should want to arm ourselves with good, rigorous science. And I had the advantage of, um, you know, I went to graduate school for public policy, I had a little bit of statistics training. I, I know the very basics. I constantly have to ask quantitatively smarter people than myself for advice and to interpret things for me. But a lot of journalists, uh, including science writers and editors, have even less statistical training than I do. So it's easy to sort of just fall for claims you wouldn't fall for otherwise.
1: And so why do you think power posing in particular caught on so widely? Yeah, so partly it's
0: that same story of just like people like the idea that they have a lot of control over their own destiny, particularly if they can like seize control with without that much effort, cuz power posing is not very um very time consuming. I argue in the book that this also sort of collided with Cheryl Sandberg's brand of lean in feminism, which is a a type of feminism that my criticism of it, uh, speaking as a man, I will, I will criticize this <laughs> branch of feminism, is that it's, it's very premised on getting women, individual women, to act differently and often more stereotypically masculine. It doesn't attend as much to the institutional or structural reasons we have gender gaps. It's much more like self-help. P- women need to sort of be more assertive, more aggressive, and, and take what they deserve. So power posing slides very neatly into that.
1: Jesse says there's also a wider ecosystem that gobbles up these types of quick, simple fixes.
0: I think it's it's a mix of a few things. One is what Daniel Dresner calls, uh, he's a political scientist at uh, Tufts, I believe he calls it the ideas industry. You know, the Aspen Ideas Festival, the TED Talk, Circuit. There's more and more opportunities if you come up with like one really cool idea like ideally sexy and counterintuitive you can gain a lot from having that idea and from disseminating it you know you can get speaking gigs book deals all that i also think social media and internet and the collapse of sort of traditional journalism models like we really live in an attention economy now and the more you can entice readers with a snappy surprising headline the more likely you can draw them in and and i think as a result there's maybe been Uh, The standards of science reporting and science communication have arguably gone down a little bit.
1: As for power posing, Amy Cuddy is no longer actively researching it. And she says the blowback and scrutiny her research received was disproportionate. We'll pop some links to more discussion on our work on the All in the Mind website. Long before power posing, another idea that caught on for a while had to do with the power of self-esteem.
0: Yeah, in the 1980s, a California state legislator named John Vasconcelos, who was sort of like just a weird guy in general, sort of hippie-ish, very self-help-ish. In order for us to live meaningfully and productively, we need to have some hopeful sense of what we can be and where we can go. He became abreast of some research suggesting that people with higher self-esteem do better in life. And he took this little kernel of a correlational scientific finding and he got the governor of California to give him a few hundred thousand dollars a year to set up a uh, commission on self-esteem. And this commission, through some sort of scientific corner cutting, they convinced themselves and many others that if you raise people's self-esteem, it can solve all sorts of social problems. Criminals commit crimes because they don't have high enough self-esteem. Kids do poorly in school because they don't have high enough self-esteem. And it just became this very simple model that really overtook the U.S. And, and other parts of the world, too. I remember when I was in kindergarten in maybe 1988, I had self-esteem training. We all did, and. I think because people often look for easy answers to what are often discrepancies in funding or kids coming from difficult backgrounds. If it were really the case that what kids lacked was self-esteem, that would be a quick fix, as it were. And and I think people fell for this idea because, like, who could really be against the idea of giving kids more self-esteem?
1: What ended up being the problem with this movement? You know, how was it on shaky research ground?
0: So, when two things correlate, that doesn't necessarily mean that one is causing the other. Eventually, some researchers took a much closer look at the research that had been published on self esteem and. One of the problems is that a lot of the time it's not that self-esteem causes achievement, but achievement causes self-esteem. So there's actually only a weak link in the first place between school achievement and self-esteem. The evidence we have suggests that as you do better and better in school, you gain more and more self-esteem rather than the opposite, rather than self-esteem causing high school achievement. The kernel of truth here is that if you have horribly low self-esteem and, you know, one bad test score causes a tailspin or one failed date causes you to think you'll be alone forever, people in that situation might benefit from some cognitive behavioral therapy or therapy more generally. There's a a kernel of truth there that very, very, very low self-esteem will likely hamper you. Beyond that, there just doesn't seem to be much of an established connection between self-esteem and anything. There were also just like some really basic theoretical flaws. I mean, people talked about an epidemic of low self-esteem among Americans, which even just saying that is kind of funny. If you've met very many Americans, we we do not suffer from a deficit of self-esteem. If you survey Americans, most of us, we think we're pretty great. So that was a weird thing to point to as a gateway to solving all these societal problems.
1: Jesse says the zeal for self-esteem training as a kind of panacea for society's ills has cooled somewhat, though it hasn't disappeared.
0: There's state laws that still have self-esteem written into sort of like what they're trying to get out of their education systems. I think most people still believe in a simple connection between self-esteem and achievement. You know, it's very intuitive, but I do think this isn't sort of the craze it was maybe uh, 25, 30 years ago.
1: You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sonic Kadar. And despite some dubious practices, self-help, and pop psychology more generally, has boomed in the last few decades.
2: It's a huge ecosystem, and I think there are no good estimates for how big it is in Australia that I'm aware of, but it's costed at about $11 billion a year in the USA, for instance. So it's an enormous industry of books, podcasts, websites, blogs, you name it.
1: Nick Haslam is a professor of psychology at the University of Melbourne. Why is it so popular? You know, how did psychology come to be so popularized?
2: Well, I think it's always tried to be not just an academic discipline, but also a field which says something about human well-being and how to make it better. So, a lot of us uh, in the academic trenches toil away, are trying to understand basic processes of mind and behaviour. Others are trying to apply that knowledge to actually make people happier and more effective. So, pop psychology is really just an attempt to present psychological ideas and theories to a general public audience.
1: And so what is the difference between popular psychology and self-help? You know, do the two cross over? Are they one and the same?
2: So, I mean, some self-help is psychological, but not all. So a whole lot of self-help comes out of a religious framework or a 12-step framework or was written by um, people with entirely non-psychological ways of thinking, often, you know, chicken soup for the soul type ideas, are inspirational stories of everyday people. There's no psychology in them whatsoever. And there's also some pop psychology which I wouldn't say is self-help. So there's a whole genre of pop psychology, which is an attempt to just apply good science journalism to mind, brain and behaviour. That is not necessarily trying to make people healthier or happier, but trying to make them more aware of recent scientific findings in the field. So famous books like Thinking Fast and Slow by Dan Kahneman, for instance, they're not going to make you happier or healthier, but they hopefully will help you understand how we make decisions better.
1: But within the self-help domain, Professor Haslam makes a distinction between two kinds of approaches.
2: One of them, I would say, is mostly about self-improvement among people who don't necessarily have any kind of mental health problem. So there's a raft of books and other products trying to improve a particular domain of your life, be a better leader, exercise more, be a better parent, grow certain kinds of qualities like improve your level of grit or improve your level of empathy or have a better relationship.
1: The other kind of self-help, Professor Haslam says, is targeted at people who have some sort of identified problem.
2: An eating problem, a depression problem, anxiety, you name it. And it's specifically trying to remedy that. It's a kind of self-administered therapy, if you like. That is, it's trying to address some sort of clinical or slightly subclinical problem. And I think, you know, self-administered therapy has its limitations. No one is suggesting that a book is equally effective as a good, trained psychotherapist, but not everyone has access to a good, trained psychotherapist. And so it's better having some sort of expert advice to guide you on the way, especially if your problem hasn't quite got to the point where you're ready to see someone professionally. Uh, It's a good first step.
1: Right. And so then what is the problem with pop psychology as you see it? Because... Surely isn't it noble and good for psychology to be made, you know, accessible to the wider public for the science to be communicated more widely?
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, look, I think it's a very good motivation behind a lot of it. But, of course, it isn't always done well. And a lot of the messages that get out there from psychology are ones that are either not backed by a good deal of research or backed by research which is weak or sometimes overhyped from good research. Part of the problem with pop psychology is not that it's evil in and of itself, but rather that it's flying far ahead of the state of the knowledge.
1: That's partly because of the issue of replication, which we mentioned earlier. Here's science writer Jesse Single again.
0: I mean, for a long time, people would do some follow-up studies, but it was surprisingly common for researchers to... Basically to downplay the importance of replication, it's not that it didn't occur, it's that it wasn't seen as very important, which it is because so many things can go wrong with one study. One study doesn't necessarily prove all that much. I think what's almost as surprising is that some journals, like high-level journals, wouldn't publish failed replications and wouldn't publish so-called null results either, meaning we tested for this thing and we didn't find it. Scientifically, if I test for an effect and I don't find it, that's important knowledge too. That adds to the body of scientific knowledge. But there's been a real bias in the scientific literature toward positive findings. And I think a lot of research just sort of gets thrown out. It gets put in the file drawer, as researchers call it, because it's not seen as publishable. Why not? Why not? Because null findings are just seen as like not exciting, not, not publication worthy, which they should be.
1: Among the faddish findings that have gained popularity more recently is something called grit.
0: Yeah, grit is an idea sort of um spearheaded by Angela Duckworth. She's a MacArthur genius grant-winning social psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Grit is basically stick-to-itiveness, like how long do you stick with difficult tasks? So Angela Duckworth, around 2004-ish, she first came out with this so-called grit scale. You basically just ask people some questions about their habits, their work tendencies, and that tells you how much grit they have. I'm in, I think, the 10th percentile of grittiness among Americans. I have no grit whatsoever, so I do not score well in this regard. She and her colleagues began to argue that this was a new and better way of predicting achievement in school and in the workplace and what was exciting about it is that they could argue that that we had been overstating the importance of sort of innate ability uh, as captured by things like IQ tests, other intelligence tests. She was saying like, hold on, like that stuff is not as important as you think. There's also this thing called grit, which has to do with how hard you try. And that is a very appealing story because researchers don't really think that there's much we can do about gaps in intelligence. IQ appears to be pretty stable. If it were true that we could like teach kids to be more gritty and that that could close achievement gaps in school, that would be a pretty big deal.
1: As part of her research, Duckworth looked at the influence of grit in Army cadets.
0: At one of our military academies, there's a thing called beast barracks, which you have to do, I think, the summer before your first year in the academy, and it's very grueling. So Angela Duckworth's early grit research was to give cadets there the grit scale, and she said that this did a better job of other tools we had, or the Army had at its disposal, predicting who would pass through beast barracks, who would have the resilience to get through this very challenging situation. And there's a kernel of something there. Like, it it seems to be a little bit better at predicting than other tools the Army had. The problem is something like 95% of cadets pass beast barracks. It is challenging, but it is something that 19 out of 20 cadets get through. So a tool that that helps you predict who will get through something most people already get through isn't necessarily that useful, and it's not necessarily as scientifically impressive as a tool that can help you predict sort of tougher to predict things, if that makes sense.
1: Nevertheless, this idea about the importance of grit started gaining traction, even grabbing the attention of the White House.
0: So the Obama administration's education department made some sort of preliminary noises about being excited about grit, I think it had a bigger impact in the charter school world where some charter schools really started internalizing grit and other so-called non-cognitive skills as like basically personality traits you want to instill in kids in addition to teaching them math and, and how to do well in the SAT or whatever. Duckworth's an interesting case because she actually wrote an op-ed for the New York Times saying like, we're a bit too early in our research on grit to apply it in this way in the real world. So she's had some um, some humility. She hasn't always just doubled down as the concept has come under attack. But there were definitely some schools in the U.S.
1: that started adopting it. And how how did this start to unravel a little bit in terms of were there other researchers, again, trying to replicate what she was doing or how did it come undone?
0: It was a couple things. One of them was that researchers showed that when you made certain... Important statistical adjustments, it turns out grit is basically identical to conscientiousness, the big five personality trait, like in some research, they really statistically act like they're the exact same thing. So that takes a little of the wind out of the sails that this is like some new important thing she discovered. The other thing is that grit does not do as well in settings that are not range restricted. So range restriction is basically if I had a database of all the heights of players in in Australia's basketball league, that's range-restricted. It's basically only the tallest people, with a few exceptions. Similarly, if, if you study kids at the University of Pennsylvania and try to correlate their SAT scores and their GRIT scores to their achievement, the problem there is you already have kids who are at the very top of the SAT distribution. GRIT does not perform as well in less range-restricted settings. So it was only a year or two ago that the first a study involving a nationally representative American sample was published, and it found that grit was much, much, much less effective at predicting achievement than things like like intelligence scores. I, I think it was intelligence scores were something like 35 times better as a predictor than grit. So grit just doesn't, except in these very specific range-restricted settings, it just doesn't perform that well as a predictor in the first place. And then the final problem, and, and again, Duckworth, to her credit, has always acknowledged this, there doesn't appear to be any way to cheaply, durably increase anyone's grit. So Even if grit mattered a lot to achievement, it it might be a dead end, at least until we have some way of, like, of getting kids' grit to go up.
1: And so what is the overall harm posed by this kind of research? Because, you know, if you want to power pose and hope that works, but it doesn't, you're not actually going to hurt yourself in any way.
0: So I think it varies from case to case. Like, I agree, power posing... Whatever. If people want a power pose, that's fine. It's like, it doesn't hurt to just, like, catch your breath and gather yourself for a minute before a meeting or whatever. The book's argument is that these ideas make it seem like there are relatively simple fixes to very complicated problems. The gap between rich kids and poor kids in schools in the States is big. It's huge in some contexts, and it's very complicated. And the reasons for certain instances of gender equity are, are complicated. So... I'm worried that this idea that, you know, psychologists can come along and really help us solve these problems is going to get people to misunderstand the nature of these problems and to think they're simpler to solve than they are. And there's there's also an opportunity cost because here maybe the best example is the implicit association test, which is, I mean, that's sort of a whole other road to go down, but it's basically a test that purports to measure your level of unconscious bias against other groups.
1: You might have heard of this test. It gauges a person's reaction time to a series of words and images, like a black face followed by the word happy or a white face followed by the word danger. Respondents have to sort the images and faces according to race and categories like good and bad. This test became widely used for bias training in schools, police departments, and other organizations in the US.
0: I would imagine the U.S. has at this point spent hundreds of millions of dollars on this test. I don't have solid data in front of me. I don't think anyone does. That's clearly money that could be spent on other diversity and equity initiatives. And this test does not really appear to do anything. So... Often there's an opportunity cost, but there's also just that broader sort of political question of like, what are we telling ourselves about these problems and how easy or difficult they are to solve?
1: Yeah, explain that a bit more. How much does, you know, do studies like this play into shifting our attention from looking at structural issues over onto the individual and, you know, their deficiencies?
0: There's a little bit of research on this question I mentioned at the end of my book, but it's, it's basically just one study suggesting that when people are exposed to these interventions, they blame the poor more for their flight. That's one study. We, we can't lean on that too hard. In the book, I'm speculating and I'm theorizing. I, having observed especially the conversation about race in the States, it has become so centered on the implicit association test and implicit bias To me, it's clearly distracting us from other more structural and often redistributive issues. I don't think I can prove that scientifically. It just seems sort of, um, from where I sit watching this stuff unfold in the States, it seems pretty obvious that we're often ruled by these fads that don't have a huge amount of evidence behind them, but that end up being sort of uh, black holes that a lot of money flies into.
1: How much of the blame do we in the media do you think share?
0: I am always happy to blame journalists. Um, <laughs> someone recently asked me if, like, how to weigh exactly how much blame to apportion between academics and journalists. And I think, at a fundamental level, academics should know better. Like, you shouldn't be a psychologist if you don't understand these statistical tools and how they can go wrong. Journalists, so many of us are under so much daily deadline pressure, and we're often thrust into beats where we don't have much experience. I don't necessarily blame a journalist for taking a press release at Harvard University at face value. I think it's unfortunate, but journalists contribute hugely to this because if you get a good write-up in Vox or Huffington Post, that can lead to a book deal. That can lead to a TED Talk. So journalists are firmly a part of this ecosystem and usually make everything worse. (laughs) 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 As we tend
1: to. (laughs) You raise an interesting point, you know, if there's like especially a name like Harvard attached to a piece of research. What I'm wondering is, you know, we've done an episode also separate to this on, um, you know, the modern guru kind of trend and, and, and the tactics used by those types and why, you know, it's quite dubious and probably not to be trusted. I'm mindful of not leaving listeners feeling like, well, if you can't trust, you know, the guru types, and you also can't trust like actual researchers from places like Harvard because the stuff they're pushing is based on shoddy research. Who do we trust? Where do we go to for help? <laughs> like, What do we do with ourselves if no one can be trusted?
0: Right. I don't want to leave your listeners on a note of just crippling nihilism. Um,
1: I, I, <laughs> part of
0: my argument in the book is that science is self-correcting, and some very smart researchers have started to figure out what has gone wrong. I think More media coverage of the scientific reform movement, highlighting sort of the most promising voices within that movement. So I don't think the takeaway message should be distrust science or distrust psychology. Full stop, I think it should be be skeptical, be informed, and things are getting better.
1: One way Jesse says things are changing is that replication is catching on as a more routine part of the research process. There have been a
0: couple really big, high-profile replication efforts, I think run by the Center for Open Science at the University of Virginia, and they're just these attempts like, let's go through top journals, and let's get all these studies, and let's get a bunch of labs together and see what replicates and what doesn't. And this was like a really big, jarring, humbling moment for the field because- only about 50% of psychology studies replicated. That is very low. We would like to think that it's not the case that if I pick a random psychology study from a journal, I can flip a coin and that'll tell me whether or not it'll replicate. Social psychology fared even worse. That was like a really worrisome moment, but it also gave researchers some diagnostic information that they sorely needed.
1: Despite the issues that have plagued psychology research and the self-help advice it informs, that's not to say we should write it all off.
2: A lot of it's very good, a lot of it's very well-grounded. I'm certainly not trying to undermine that.
0: I think it's more clinical psychology, but I think cognitive behavioral therapy seems to have a firm evidence base behind it. That's premised on the idea that we have some control over how we interpret uh, negative stimuli, and there's some self helpy aspects to that.
2: I think what you really just have to pay attention to is are people setting themselves up as having the one solution to all their problems? Whenever you have someone who's claiming 100% success rates to following their program, you know you're in trouble.
0: I do think some mindfulness meditation, a lot of people think that has solid evidence behind it. And that's another thing where it's like, what harm could it do to, to, you know, establish a a 15-minute-a-day meditation practice?
2: So I think my suggestion would be to seek out the voices of people who can at least give some sort of credible, sober assessment of how effective their message is.
1: That's psychology professor Nick Haslam from the University of Melbourne. And before him, science writer Jesse Single. He's also the author of The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. And before we say goodbye, if you've been enjoying the show this year, please give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think and it would help other listeners discover the pod too. You can also drop us an email at mind underscore RN at abc.net.au. I'm Sana Dar. Catch you next time.
2: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.